check. Am I on? All right. If you have a uh, Bible with you, please turn to John 17, chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the uh, aisle here in the middle, so feel free to uh, make use of that. If you don't have a Bible, please, please take the one that you're, that you're, uh, you're holding. Uh, that's our gift to you. We started walking through the Gospel of John here at Trinity 46 weeks ago. And if you remember that first week, uh, we talked about the Apostle John's mission statement for his Gospel. It's actually found in chapter 20, not quite the end of the book. He says, uh, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's mission in writing is that you would have life, and that you would have it through believing the works of Jesus' earthly ministry. And for the past few weeks, uh, since really since chapter 13, we've been in this room with Jesus and the disciples. It's very likely not the first intimate evening of dinner and conversation that the disciples spent with Jesus since he assembled them uh, a few years before that. But uh, John spends a considerable amount of time, uh, about, about a quarter of, of his gospel, in this room, 25%. The reason seems pretty clear because in the darkness of the uh, following morning, Judas, a friend of Jesus, will deliver him to the Roman authorities for him to be tried tortured, and sentenced to death by crucifixion. So these are some of the last words Jesus will speak to his disciples before he leaves them. So the event is a bit of a commissioning service for the disciples uh, that ends in Jesus praying for them. So the question is, what does he pray for? Praying seems important to Jesus. He, we're told that he prays by himself. We're told that uh, our, he teaches the disciples how they should pray. In the, the Lord's Prayer, which commentators, they always have a note, that should be called the Disciples' Prayer, since it's what they're supposed to pray. Um, he prayed before raising Lazarus from the tomb. But the Gospel writers don't actually spill much ink transcribing Jesus' prayers themselves. And on the topic of prayer, commentators don't really draw much from this passage. Maybe Jesus prayer isn't prescriptive, that we're not the sons of God, so we shouldn't pray like him. Turn to Paul's prayers. Maybe we should pray like Paul. Or maybe it's that Jesus' whole life is a prayer. If prayer is communicating with God, and Jesus is perfectly God in human form, and God is his Father whom he loves perfectly, maybe his communicating with his Father doesn't deserve a special category. In fact, John doesn't even call it a prayer. He just starts it with, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. It's likely that John highlights this monologue of Jesus talking to his father precisely because he couldn't include all of the words that Jesus had with his father. The last verse in John, were every one of the works of Jesus to be written, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We don't know if Jesus blessed every meal before he ate or if he prayed for people to get over their stomach bugs or he just healed them uh, or prayed about getting a job after a rough rough interview. The gospel authors don't include these kinds of details. 
But John chose these particular words for some reason. Maybe he just remembered it best out of everything else because it was the last words that, that he remembers him saying. Or maybe it has something to do with what the disciples say right before he starts his prayer at the end of the conversation in chapter 16. Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and believe that you came from God. Maybe this prayer is important to John because he's now listening with new ears. So he starts fumbling around for his phone so he can record it. Jesus is now looking to heaven and speaking to the disciples indirectly. And to understand Jesus' prayer, why he looked up to heaven as opposed to just speaking to them further uh, directly, it would make sense to look at what he actually asks God to do. So what petitions does he make to his father? What do they mean? And do they have any relevance to us? So um, let's, uh, to begin with, let's read the text together. So if uh, you would stand with me in honor of God's word, we'll do that now. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before, with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I, gave, that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So there is, uh, there is more to this prayer than we can cover in our time together. Uh, unfortunately, we will probably not answer every theological question that came to mind as we read through that. But if we can boil it down to Jesus' requests that he makes to his father, we can get a good picture of the priorities that he has in his mind as he stares at death. And what better picture of a person is there than this? Jesus prays for five things. For glory, we'll, we'll, we'll bucket them into these, uh, these uh, headings. For glory, he prays for oneness, for protection, for truth, for eternity. First, he prays for glory. In verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that, you had, that I had with you before the world existed. So I don't know what you think of when you think of glory, maybe magnificence or beauty, um, some kind of renown or fame. Uh, The internet tells me that the definition is honor won by notable achievements. So there was a notable achievement this past week. Um, Last Sunday night, the New York Giants hosted the Dallas Cowboys, and a 22-year-old rookie wide receiver named Odell Beckham Jr., was stumbling, he ran down the field, he was stumbling over his opponent and falling uh, into the one or two yard line um, and reaches up and catches this long pass from Eli Manning with three fingers. And then he sort of lands and then uh, breaks the plane of the end zone and and scores. So notable was this achievement achievement that the New York Times actually had a whole article on it. And... um, purely because uh, everyone was saying that this move defied physics. And you know, if it defies physics, then you know, people like uh, UNC Charlotte engineering professor Tony Schmitz has to, uh, has to comment, and this comment is great. He says, his body is cantilevering, but he's fortunate at one point to get his left foot on the ground to brace against the momentum of the then-46-mile-an-hour tra- then football striking his hand. Glorious. What is also glorious is that I managed to have a football and a New York Times uh, illustration in my sermon for, uh, for Matt. Two things that Matt loves. Um, up to this point in John, we've only seen Jesus talk about his glory in one other passage. Um, John mentions it a few times in other places. Uh, but, but Jesus has been, he's been going over, uh, um, all over the place performing these miraculous acts. Uh, that are signs that he is whom the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist foretold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And each sign has grown increasingly confrontational with the Jewish Jewish establishment. And by chapter 8, the word on the street is that Jesus might be the Christ. And so there's public support for it. And the Jewish leaders are, are tired of his meddling and are trying to figure out how to charge him with a crime without making, him, or without making them look like the bad guys. And meanwhile, Jesus has been engaged in this discourse with them that culminates in them playing the Abraham card 
saying, well, we're, we're sons of Abraham. I don't, I don't know what your problem is. Um, our ticket is already punched. All the stuff about freedom, we're not quite sure what you mean. And Jesus removes any pretense from his confrontation that he's had with them and finally just tells them, you don't understand because you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. At this point, the only way they can find to explain all, all of his miracles, his other behavior, the things he's saying, is just to assume that he's two of the worst things that they can think of. That he has a demon and that he's a Samaritan. He responds in chapter 50, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who does. Capital O on the one. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. His explanation for everything he's done is that his father would glorify him. And then in chapter 17, he's saying, God, go ahead, glorify me. The time has come. It sounds a little self-serving. Jesus came so that he would be glorified. He says he's not seeking his own glory, but everything he's doing suggests that he really is. So Jesus went to all this trouble for himself? Jesus asked God to glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Paul writes to the Philippians that Jesus humbled himself and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Gave up the glory that was rightfully his so that he could incarnate as one of us and be despised and mocked and shamed and take the punishment that we deserve. His glory is the key to everything. Him getting his glory back is the only way that we get life. It is the essence of his mission on earth. And as we'll see, it's also not reserved for him. His glory is glorious because of what he does with it. Jesus also prays for oneness. Um, It's all over the place, eight times. Uh, One example is in, in verse 11. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He uses it in two ways. It describes his relationship to his father, and it describes his desire for his disciples and the future believers, that they would all be perfectly one. So what is this idea of oneness? It, it's, not, it's what you would think it sounds like. It's parts that come together to form a whole, some kind of unification. So what kind of unity is Jesus referring to? It has a purpose to it. It defines their love for one another. And we talked about this at the retreat. God the Son, God the Father, they so perfectly love each other that they can be called one. The first people on earth, Adam and Eve, they were married and called one flesh. We still use that language today in, in, in ceremonies. A choir, a single voice made out of many so that it sounds singular. They are better together than they are apart. And so unified are the parts that, so unified is the whole that the parts are almost indistinguishable. Unity is what love is about. Love is caring about another's glory, unifying with them in something that will aim them at what's good for them. So what is Jesus' target? What is he aiming at? What is their best good? Jonathan Lehman explains, 
Love is an affection for another's good. Something in you attracts me to want your good. Furthermore, the good that I want for you has a fixed and certain content, God. God is the good that God lovingly wants for others, and he's the good that we should lovingly want for others. God's love is God-centered. Ours should be as well. Maybe surprising to you, the human heart is actually great at this kind of unified love, dutifully aiming itself to a target no matter what the cost, but it's the wrong target. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You might be thinking that your heart, you know, it has dark corners, sure, uh, but it's not that bad. You know, I'm mostly a neutral person. Um, I've never really done anything too egregious. I'm pretty good. Um, last week, I was sitting in my, uh, in my favorite coffee shop, and uh, in the midst of uh, sort of unusual quiet at the moment, um, I hear this crash behind me. The lid to the half-and-half half thermos had, had uh, hit the ground and had rolled um, across the room. And I look over from kind of being awoken from what I was doing, and I look back to see this well-dressed woman chasing after this lid. And as she chases it, I hear her say, I didn't know that would come off. Someone didn't put it on. In what was surely one of this woman's most neutral of all acts, stopping on the way to work to get a cup of coffee, in a matter of one second, she managed to judge an absent, defenseless stranger, the previous consumer of the half and half, and declare herself as the innocent party. I didn't know it would come off. I'm not to blame here. Neutrality is not a category in the Bible. Either we love people by giving them God or we will use them. Rather than look for God's glory in others, we look for us in others. So maybe in that example, you take the side of the coffee woman. Uh, Your internal sense of justice says that she was uh, innocent and had a right to defend herself. Uh, Unfortunately, matters are not always that um, straightforward. There's a more insidious form of this um, that a, a, a pastor describes in a, a blog post, actually, um, where he's talking about um, an area of sin that continues to, continues to baffle and disappoint him. Uh, it's actually something that happens in his home. Listen to what he writes. It says, it's my inability to consistently think rightly about other people's motives. I've been married to my wife for more than 14 years now. In that time, she has been loving and loyal and kind and everything else a husband could desire in a wife. She has borne me three children, supported me through career changes, tolerated my sin, prayed me through difficulty, helped me be a man whose church can call him to be their pastor. And yet in a moment, in a blink of an eye, when she in some way displeases me, I can act as if she never loved me at all as if she has only ever treated me with contempt. In a moment, I can throw out all those years of love and sacrifice and assume that she is now opposed to me, looking out for her interests instead of mine, interested in harming me instead of helping me. In a moment, I throw away all these evidences of her love and behave as if she hates me. 
You don't have to be married to know exactly what he's talking about. Every one of us, a son, a daughter, a sister, a brother, a friend. Any of us have seen a loved one become an enemy through no fault of theirs. It's not always so obvious. When God is not our target in love, it will be us. There is no neutrality. If we aren't giving way so that others can be better aimed at God, then we will make them bend to be better aimed at us. Oneness is an agreement that God is the ultimate good. Jesus gave his glory and life for us. He bent and broke himself so that we would be aimed at God and ultimately get what he prays, joy, but what will make him most glorified and us most happy. Here at Trinity, we sign a covenant with each other when we, um, it's our, part of our process for membership. And uh, at the beginning, we actually affirm this oneness. We, we, write, we say this to each other at every members meeting. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is not our natural inclination. We have, to through, we have to, through the Holy Spirit, be intentional about it. It takes work and prayer. We borrowed that language. For, um, it's old language. We borrowed it because it's so beautiful. Both, work, both of those things have to be there, and, bo- and they work together. And it's modeled in Jesus. He worked and he prayed that it would be so. Next, Jesus prays for protection. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The evil one here is clearly the devil. Jesus refers to him twice before this evening, twice before during this evening conversation with the disciples, as the ruler of this world. And since here Jesus is praying for his disciples as they are remaining in the world, it would make sense then that the devil is indeed the evil one. In other Gospels, Jesus calls him by his name Satan. And Satan is a Hebrew word meaning adversary. Commentators describe from many passages in the Bible, uh, we don't have time to barely skim the surface here, that um, he is an angelic entity that lives in the spiritual realm who's the head of the demonic forces that rebelled against God sometime between creation and when the serpent shows up uh, in the garden and engages Eve. He's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. He can observe the physical world, but is limited in how he can intervene. So he cannot read thoughts. He can't know the future, apart from just being able to observe the same prophecies that that we have in the Bible or other observed information. So what can he do? Back in chapter 8, he speaks out of his own character. This is Jesus' words. He is a liar and the father of lies. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into the, the details, but um, a couple of things. Um, please study this. If you need resources, let us know. We can, we can, um, we can help you with that. If it's something, something you really wrestle with intellectually. Um, deeper down in your heart, don't let the limitation of your five physical senses, senses be a hindrance. All the good things in the Bible, the call to love, to not judge your neighbor, the, the moral code, the ethics that we would all uh, you know, value in a society, things that we can't tangibly prove, they're placed alongside this reality. It's what the Bible believes. If you, you can't have the good and not have the bad. 
Paul also gives us a practical manual uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. He talks about the, the weapons that we have in our arsenal, the rules of engagement with this evil. I encourage you to meditate on that. We can sum up Jesus' concern for the disciples in this way. Satan is the enemy of oneness. And he sows disunity and he points us away from what's good. And we already know what's good. It's God. Furthermore, Jesus' presence on earth spells trouble for Satan. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus describes the world as Satan's house. That Jesus can now plunder having brought the authority of God's kingdom and therefore power over demons. Jesus knows that the demonic forces in the world will focus their efforts on the destruction of his church that he's leaving in order for it to be built. And if you're anything like me, you you, uh, drive into one of the two sides of the road. You're either really apathetic towards the reality of the devil or you vastly overestimate his power. So you just blame everything on the devil. You think that he is controlling everything and, and uh, um, affects uh, every bad thing that you can think of. One of the most clarifying images for me of Satan's activity is actually a passage in the uh, Old Testament book of Zechariah. And we actually preached through the Minor Prophets uh, a few years ago. So um, I haven't listened to the sermon again. So I'm, I'm sure Matt uh, has a, a great, uh, a lot more detail here than I'm um, going to tell you. But basically... Israel had, uh, they had officially given up on ever getting a king, and uh, at least a good one, again, and uh, they had devolved into worldly living, and God called Zechariah to speak for him, and he gave him a series of visions, and in the fourth vision, Zechariah sees a courtroom, and the angel of the Lord is, is on the bench presiding over the courtroom, and the defendant is the high priest, Joshua, different Joshua from the, the, uh, uh, earlier Joshua, uh, going into the promised land, Joshua. And um, he symbolizes Israel's decline. He stands for the people, and he's clothed in, in filth, and actually literally means excrement. I mean, he's, he's, he's quite dirty, um, which would dequal- uh, disqualify him from his priestly uh, duties. He wouldn't be able to uh, do his job. And then there's a prosecutor that stands next to him, that is, uh, brings the case against him. And here's what Zechariah writes. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The prosecutor's power is no match for the judges, but he's a very influential part of the proceedings. He can't change what happened, but he can twist the truth to support his case. As well as we can understand from the Bible, God does leave a certain amount of power and influence to Satan. It's mysterious. But he has no ability to force us to sin. And even though he, even though he does play some part in probably all sinful activity. And again, take the, you know, these are faithful commentators that I'm, I'm taking, word, uh, taking their word for. Um, and they obviously, if you read about this, they have a lot of evidence supporting their case. But in general, we can we can say that evil is very much a reality of the Bible, and more specifically in the New Testament. And it was so real to Jesus that he didn't leave the earth without explicitly praying against it. Next, Jesus prays for truth. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and come to know in truth that I came from you. 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The disciples were to remain in the world, yet sanctified, yet set apart. How would they resolve this competing, uh, this tension? Jesus says that there's a middle ground in this life for the disciples. They will be set apart from the world, even though they're living in it and influenced by it. Loving the same things that the world loves. And loving the way that the world defines love. But they will be set apart by truth. So what is truth? God himself is truth. More tangibly, God's word is truth. It's how he manifests himself to the world. It's through whom he made everything. It's by which he came into the world as Jesus. And it's not just that Jesus tells us true words. It's that Jesus is truth himself. The expression of God's character. So it's no accident that words, that language, is such an important part of our existence. Any great achievement is usually accomplished through teams of people. They communicate together. They use language. Uh, when, God, when the uh, people were building the Tower of Babel, um, and, and they were, you know, the mankind had grown um, in, their, in its hubris to even build it, God didn't smite them with illness or you know, melt their faces like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He just, he just confused their language. That was enough. Anyone who deals with children... What's the most frustrating part? It's trying to get them to communicate with you, to tell you what they need. Most people want to to help children. They want to give them what they need. They want to teach them. But you can't know if you're teaching them if they don't express back to you that they understand the instruction. What is the weapon that the devil, devil uses? Words. Lies. He accuses. Did God actually say not to eat from the, from the tree? You will surely not die. Adam and Eve didn't believe God's words. What does God use as his unifying center? His name. Jesus also uses this. um, He he prays for this um, in in his prayer. Keep them in your name. His name is his glory, his fame, his word that goes out. It's Jesus. The greatest service that we can do for each other is to give each other God's words. They are the orienting force that aims our love for each other toward him. Think of Nehemiah. They had finished building a wall. Uh, They had returned home to their promised land. They were exiles uh, for many years. They come home and they build this wall. And and to commission it, they had this ceremony. And Ezra, the scribe, and the priest, and all the Levites, who are the the, the scribes, descended from the son of, of, of Jacob who um, were responsible for interpreting the law, they read the book of the law of Moses to the people and this is what he writes, they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. And then in the New Testament, Peter tells us that because we are, uh, because of Jesus, we all have direct access to God, we don't need a mediator anymore, so we're all basically priests. We can do that for each other. Make the Bible part of your speech. Pray with each other using the Bible. Sit and discuss the Bible. Let the Bible inform your counsel for each other. It's okay to just meet and say, hey, you want to talk about the Bible? I've done that with some brothers. It is extremely fruitful. There's no agenda. Say, hey, what have you been reading? 
Also, don't underestimate the power of your words, both good and bad. I love what uh, one of my favorite songwriters, Glenn Phillips, he, uh, he has a burgeoning solo career now that he's uh, not with Toad the Wet Sprocket anymore. Um, and he has this great song where he says, there's nothing that doesn't matter. Every word is a seed that you scatter. Words are important. We only get so many words with each other. Make them God's words. Jesus prayed that his truth would sanctify us. And lastly, Jesus prays for eternity. Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's this video that has uh, started going around recently. Um, I don't know who did it. Um, I just pre- I watched it, but um, somebody has taken all of these beautiful, high-definition images from uh, the Mars rover and various satellites that have uh, traveled through space and telescopes and you know all of our best technology that has have just snapped photos of all over the galaxy. And they've put these images um, in sort of like a movie trailer where they, they show them, they've kind of superimposed like some people and some, you know, these guys skydiving off this, uh, you know, ravine, into this ravine, and um, has the voice of Carl Sagan narrating it. It's beautiful. It's really something. And uh, one of my acquaintances that uh, had a comment on this, he said this, it, it's all about basically... Um, that, that um, inhabiting other worlds now is basically a matter of engineering. So we've solved all the physics. We kind of know the, the challenges involved. We just need to, to come up with solutions to, to actually uh, go there. And, and one of my acquaintances, um, he says, this is the future that I want. Which is understandable. I mean, it's, it's, it's really something. I mean, space is a, is a big topic in our house. We love it. Um, it's fascinating. I think John was thinking of Jesus' prayer when he wrote in Revelation. This is John's vision of the future. No longer will there be, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Right before Jesus prays, he says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I don't, I don't want any future that leaves me the way that I am. I don't want to take the problems of the world and just put them in a different world. What good is Mars if there's still police brutality, still racism, there's still crime where we need police? The glory of the world is summarized in Psalm 144. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. The giants lost to the cowboys, 31 to 28. The greatest catch in football didn't even achieve its purpose. Jesus prayed for glory, for unity, for protection, for truth, for eternity. And the most beautiful part of this prayer is that he prayed for you. 
you believe that he is the one whom God sent? Jesus has gotten down from his bench. He's taken his spotless, dry-cleaned robe, and he's exchanged it with your filthy clothes. Your accusation becomes his accusation. His glory becomes your glory. Let's pray together. And I'm just going to pray what Jesus prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.